Welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chantler. This is a podcast by clinical psychologists for clinical psychologists. It will introduce you to experts in a wide range of fields relevant to the practice of clinical psychology, and I hope you'll find it engaging and informative. Today, I'd like to introduce you to a new presenter on Clinically Thinking, Matt Cartwright. Matt is an APS Clinical College committee member and works in clinical practice in Darwin in the Northern Territory. Hi, Matt. Hello, Lisa. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Can you tell us about your career journey thus far? Well, it's a relatively brief career journey so far. I'm quite new to the profession and mm-hmm. absolutely loving it. I'm currently a registrar, so I graduated my clinical master's at the end of 2020, and I've now been working, where are we now, in September, so for nine months, I'm working ah, full-time. Well done. Um, so newly emerged um, to the profession, but loving the challenge of learning all things clinical psychology and getting some great experiences of all the things that they don't teach you during the master's. Ah, yes, there are a few of those, aren't there? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. There's a lot to learn. There is indeed. And how did you get to be in Darwin? Because I'm down in Adelaide where it's freezing cold today. How did you get to be in sunny Darwin? So originally I moved up to do my honours year. I was really interested in the trauma space within military personnel. And so uh, when I came up originally for a holiday a year before, commencing honours, I realised there was a a uni up here and and looking at the expertise of some of the professionals, uh, some of the um, academics at Charles Darwin University, I found that there was a a flair in the military space. So it seemed like a perfect fit and I applied for an early admission to honours and as they say, the rest is history. Ah, good on you. And talking about history, how did you get to be involved in the uh, clinical college committee? Why would anybody want to do that? Well, it, it's interesting. In my honours year, I wasn't even a member of the APS and it wasn't until Shame. I had a, a chance to speak with the student rep uh, during my honours year that I kind of started to get engaged and involved in the professional association. And ever since then, there's just been opportunity after opportunity to get involved. And uh, before long, I yeah was able to get involved and participate at the national level, which was fantastic. So tell us, Matt, what's the topic for today's show? Well, today I'm going to be talking about a a very different way of understanding psychological distress, something that uh, is quite different to our existing frameworks for understanding psychological distress, such as through the diagnostic systems like DSM or ICD. And that particular alternative framework is called the power, threat and meaning framework. It was developed originally from the British Psychological Society and one of the lead authors in the framework is Dr Lucy Johnson, who I have the privilege to be able to speak to today. It sounds like a pretty radical change from what we're used to, is that right? It's radical, I believe, and I suppose this is my perspective, in the sense that it enables a far greater focus on developing meaning-making and understanding the journey in which a person has gone through to develop the difficulties that they face when they often present and engage with a psychologist. Well, this sounds really interesting. I'm very much looking forward to hearing this interview. So let's settle back and uh, enjoy listening to you. Take it away. So 
The power threat meaning framework is a new perspective on why people sometimes experience a whole range of forms of distress, confusion, fear, despair, and troubled or troubling behaviour. It's an alternative to the more traditional models based on psychiatric diagnosis. It was co-produced with service users and applies not just to people who've been in contact with the mental health or criminal justice systems, but to all of us. The framework summarises and integrates a great deal of evidence about the role of various kinds of power in people's lives, the kinds of threat that misuses of power pose to us, and the ways we've learnt as human beings to respond to threat. In traditional mental health practice, these threat responses are sometimes called symptoms. The framework also looks at how we make sense of these difficult experiences and how messages from wider society can increase our feelings of shame, self-blame, isolation, fear and guilt. But more of that later. Dr Lucy Johnson is a UK clinical psychologist, trainer, speaker and writer and a long-standing critic of biomedical model psychiatry. She's worked in adult mental health settings for many years, alternating with academic posts, and she's a former program director of the Bristol Clinical Psychology Doctorate in the UK, a highly regarded course which was based on a critical, politically aware and service user-informed philosophy, along with an emphasis on personal development. Lucy's authored a number of books on topics such as psychiatric diagnosis, formulation, the psychological effects of ECT, and the role of trauma in breakdown. And she joins me now on Clinically Thinking. Lucy Johnson, welcome. Thank you, and I'm very pleased to be here. Perhaps if we begin with some context by examining the differences between Australia and the UK, despite Commonwealth and state and territory government departments from corrections to health and education providing some access to clinical psychology services in Australia, the primary access point for clinical psychology here is overwhelmingly in the private and community sector, and that's sometimes made more accessible with the likes of subsidised Uh, sessions through Medicare and and limited free services for vulnerable and marginalised groups. In contrast, what are the systems and streams for clinical psychology services like in the UK? That's a good question. And I visited Australia with the Power Threat Meaning Framework and with one of the co-authors, John Crombie, in 2019. I was really interested to meet a lot of clinical psychologists, among others, and sort of compare and contrast our different systems. And of course, there are commonalities. Both systems are fundamentally based on a diagnostic understanding of what I would call mental distress, but there are certainly big differences. And it struck me we have a lot more freedom in the UK. We're not, at least not yet, rigidly tied to an insurance system. Uh, We have our NHS, more or less. We have a tradition, I think, of being much more critical about diagnostic approaches and understandings. And although that's not the dominant view, it's a kind of fairly mainstream view. And in fact, while I was in Australia, I met a number of clinical psychologists who had trained in the UK, moved to Australia because they'd uh, married someone who was Australian and were feeling quite disillusioned with the limitations on their practice. So in the UK, clinical psychologists would be found throughout the system, including in inpatient settings. So I think that gives us more opportunities Mm -hmm. as psychologists. And I think it also means that when we're in those settings, we can draw on a wider range of models, including some that are really quite critical of current understandings. Yes. And in in May 2013, uh, the Division of Clinical Psychology within the British Psychological Society released a position statement entitled 
classification of behavior and experience in relation to functional psychiatric diagnoses, time for a paradigm shift. Lucy, could you tell me about how this position came to be formed within the division and the effect that this statement has subsequently had on the profession within the UK? Yes, this was, from my point of view, a high point of my profession. I don't always agree with my profession's stance, but um, in 2013, at exactly the same time as the most recent edition of DSM was released, um, my professional body, as you say, released this statement, essentially calling for the end of the diagnostic model, saying this has run out of steam, we don't have evidence for it. Uh, And to quote the statement, there is a need for a paradigm shift towards a conceptual system which is no longer based on a disease model. Now, I think there is um, one of the New Zealand clinical psychology colleges publicly endorsed that, but as far as I know, we are the only professional body in the entire world to say something as outspoken as that. And of course, it wasn't, this is not opposition held by all individual clinical psychologists. It caused a great deal of upset. Um, It was the main news on one of our main Sunday papers. Lots of people lined up to say, what a ridiculous position we've taken. Nevertheless, this provided a platform for the development of the power threat meaning framework, because one of the recommendations of this statement was, well, if we're saying this model has reached the end of its useful life, we need to actually produce something different. And that was why the Division of Clinical Psychology was willing to fund a group of us to develop something different, which ultimately turned into the power threat meaning framework. For me, it really highlighted the uh, the, the seeming impenetrable nature of the DSM framework that it, it couldn't possibly be questioned. It's something that's simply fact that these are organic and, and truly mm. existing conditions. What were the uh, attitudes or um, conversations that were had in immediate response to the framework's release? Uh, well, the framework has um, exploded <laughs> with a much greater force than we ever anticipated. So it took a group of us, including, as you say, survivors of the psychiatric system, five years to produce this document, which was the most challenging intellectual task any of us have ever taken part in. There were certainly times when I think we were thinking, well, where are we going with this? We emerged the other end uh, thinking, well, you know, we have this 400 word really very dense academic document so the framework is a set of principles it's not a it doesn't specifically say do this do that do the other it's a set of principles to replace the principles on which the dsm and icd are based and we had no idea whether anyone ever even read this thing and um so the launch was in january 2018 so nearly three years down the line it's had an enormous impact, much bigger than we could ever have hoped for. So it's been going to be translated into, looks like, seven or eight other languages. It's been taken up in services and, you know, by people across the world. It's been taken on by peer groups. It's attracted a lot of attention and also a lot of controversy. And that's inevitable and to some extent that's good we need to have conversations about new ideas we are certainly not presenting it as this is it folks we are saying here's a set of ideas which if we're interested we can and it's optional of course we can take them up we can translate them into practice in various ways we can evaluate those attempts we can feed back into further development of the framework so 
that process is underway. Mm-hmm. So we've had very legitimate conversations about these are some of the limitations. We're already, I think, shaping the framework in different ways because of that. We've had a great deal of attack and trolling and, you know, frankly, personal abuse and insults, particularly on social media. It's quite hard to work out how representative that is, because, as you know, social media amplifies some of the loudest voices who may not actually be talking for anyone but themselves. But the framework itself, uh, interestingly, would predict that kind of response. We are mounting uh, a challenge to power. The framework is all about power. We are mounting a challenge to a particular form of power, which we would call ideological power, the power of a particular worldview, which is not based on evidence, which is not to most people helpful, which on the in the long term for most people is harmful. And there are many vested interests in that. And we would expect a backlash. And the more you know, the more unreasonable the backlash, I think, the more we can say to ourselves, well, we've actually hit home with this, we're saying something important. Reading through perhaps um, some of that uh, content that is online, did you find that in any way it was similar to the types of criticisms of uh, functional psychiatric diagnosis? Yes, indeed, there there are common themes, yes. The, the, the framework is attempting to produce something very different from diagnosis, but criticisms of diagnosis have been around a very long time and have always been resisted. All, although right from the beginning of what you might call modern psychiatry, people have been saying, I don't think we've got this right. I think this is a fundamentally mistaken way of understanding human emotional suffering. So we're continuing in a long, <laughs> a long line of challenges, critiques and backlash. Yes. Just, just exploring the, the limitations and those critiques of diagnostic practice uh, in and of itself, what did you find prior to being involved in the development of the framework were your key critiques of the diagnostic framework? Okay, so I think I'll speak for all of us in the core authorship group, which is eight of us. And the reason we ended up together is because we've all held very similar views and indeed have known each other for years, in fact, decades. So we're coming from a very similar position. And I mean, I personally have never believed in the diagnostic model. It's always seemed to be complete nonsense to me, if I can be frank. Um, I have a slightly more sophisticated critique now than I did as really quite a, I mean, a young woman, even a teenager, I thought this sounds like rubbish to me. But, you know, The interesting thing that's happening at the moment is that even the very senior clinicians and psychiatrists who draw up the DSM manual are openly admitting that this is not based in evidence. These categories are not valid, as um, Professor Alan Francis said, and he's the the chair of the DSM-4 committee, there is no reason to believe that DSM-5 is safe or scientifically sound. That's quite damning. So actually, we don't have to turn to kind of, you know, mavericks to say, well, why are we doing this? The people who, and I would use this word deliberately, invented these categories are saying they don't work. Millions of pounds and dollars are being poured into developing an alternative from scratch. I think that's a waste of time because they still haven't fundamentally re-evaluated the core assumption that problems of human emotional suffering are best understood in the same way as we understand biological dysfunctions and disease processes in the body. That is a false analogy. And it's an analogy that the framework entirely rejects and attempts to replace. Now, as a clinician, of course, I would 
I've always felt that my instinctive beliefs have been very much borne out by what I've seen in practice, which is people having their reality redefined for them, having, in the words of the slogan, what happened to you turn into what's wrong with you, being Mm. told that they have uh, some individual deficit, and this can be psychologically as well as psychiatrically, you know, your negative thinking and so on, is in a way just as damaging a message as your chemical imbalances, and embarking on a long-term career as a psychiatric patient, which is a tragic outcome and which quickly leads to a slippery slope in which people are given more and more drugs, have more and more admissions, get more and more stuck in a particular way of seeing themselves and their difficulties. And, you know, as we know from the statistics, are likely to die up to 20 years earlier than someone who has never been sucked into the system. You know, that, that is indefensible in my view. We are long overdue a change. I'm curious where, for, you mentioned that when you were quite young yourself, uh, both as a person as, an, as, as a clinician also, that you had already emerging attitudes around functional psychiatric diagnosis. Where do you feel that originated from? I think it originated from two main sources. Um, one, I was, you know, quite an unhappy child, uh, girl, young adolescent, young woman. Um, and, you know, there were lots of things I struggled with to a very large extent. And I could have met the criteria for all sorts of diagnoses at various times in my earlier life. But two, I'm of the generation where when I was... Um, growing up there were critiques around it was the kind of tail end if you like of the what is sometimes called the anti-psychiatry movement and um, so there were books by kind of Lang and other things lying around and because of the kind of person I am I sought my response not in doing something interesting exciting like going out and spending all night at parties or rebelling in any outward way but in locking myself away in my room as a teenager reading myself through volumes of Lang and Jung and all sorts of things and so Mm. this very much confirmed my instinctive feeling that my unhappiness was there for reasons and it's it's Mm. that that led me into the profession of clinical psychology and my fundamental beliefs haven't changed but have been strongly reinforced by everything I've read everything I've practiced and everything I've seen and just about all the conversations I've had with survivors, people who use the psychiatric system. Mm. I'm reminded of a, of a text that you wrote, a straight-talking introduction to psychiatric diagnosis. And what seems to really shine through in this text for me is it opens a dialogue about choice, about giving people yeah. avenues to make up their own minds and safely explore alternatives for those who wish to understand and make meaning from their distress, very similar to your own experience. What Mm. did you hope that that uh, book could bring to the profession and the study of clinical psychology? Okay, so in some ways that book is aimed mainly at people, I mean, ordinary people who may have got sucked into the psychiatric system or who may be thinking of approaching the psychiatric system. So it's a it's a short accessible book i hope it's you know it's easy to read and, and you know, illustrated by people's stories so i wrote that not so much for clinical psychology although i hope it's useful to clinical psychologists but in order to spread the you know give people access to knowledge which i think they have the right to have access to which is that these labels do not have to be taken as god-given truths you know they are not scientifically based and now if they're helpful to you if it 
you know, the message of the book is about choice. It's not about saying you're not allowed to describe yourself in this way, but it is about saying there are alternatives and alternatives that may be more helpful to you. And you, know, you need to know this so that you can be sure that you can reach the best understanding of your own difficulties or perhaps the difficulties of someone you kind of work with or live with or support or whatever. Uh, it's this new edition coming out early next year. And it's been quite interesting revising it because in some ways, nothing's changed since 2014, the first edition. In some ways, quite a lot has changed in the sense that there's a massive rise in a trend to self-diagnose, particularly among young people, which I have to say I find very regrettable. Mm. <laughs> it, it's, you know, my first edition is very much written from the angle of, you know, a doctor may give you this label which you don't feel able to disagree with. Um, a label now appears to be becoming more of a badge of honour and a sign of group membership for young people. And I think it's really important to look at the reasons for that. You know, life for young people and for all of us is in many ways much more difficult than it ever has been before. And the answer, in my view, is not to be found in joining, as one of my colleagues said, a diagnostic group as opposed to a political group, in a sense. You know, we need to look at the root causes of people's distress rather than rush to join the ever-growing crowd of people who seem to be keen to medicalize themselves yes what i sense is kind of embedded within uh that text then is the notion of providing understanding gives itself gives anyone power the, the idea that knowledge is power and, and through yeah. providing that text is a is a form of uh would you call it uh academic power um intellectual power yeah, that's a good point. Um, the phrase we've used in the framework is epistemic justice. So we have talked, in, we talk a lot about power of all kinds in the framework. What the framework adds, we hope, to something that's missing by definition from diagnostic understandings, but is missing also from many of the more narrow psychological and psychotherapeutic understandings, is a real understanding of the role of power in people's lives. And that can be of all kinds, legal, economic, interpersonal, coercive, and so on. But ideological power is the power to, um, in various ways, take over people's minds, if you like, to enforce particular expectations or rules or worldviews or understandings, which in various ways people are discouraged from questioning. And very often ideological power operates in the interests of those who are already more powerful and to the detriment of those who are already less powerful. So we've got this provocative phrase in the framework, which is offering or indeed imposing a psychiatric diagnosis is an act of epistemic injustice. It's an act of defining a reality from an expert or so-called expert position in such a way that cuts off options, cuts off your own meanings and values. And it's very much the aim of the framework, you know, as with my book that you just mentioned, to give people those options, to give people knowledge. Knowledge is power, knowledge offers choice and the possibility for empowerment. It, it highlights then that psychiatry in the 21st century may indeed be an active participant in disempowering consumers of mental health services. And certainly your text uses and abuses and also you know, formulation in psychology and, and psychotherapy it, it highlights, I suppose, the, the function of formulation, that, that therapeutic dance between client and clinician can encompass formulation as an active and collaborative process. 
and it instills a relational element within all therapeutic modalities to again shift that that power um, expectation or that 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 rigid power role between clinician and client once more by enabling uh, mm. by enabling formulation to be a, a shared process. Yes, I mean, formulation is quite a big thing in the UK, and I'm sure it's not a new word in Australia, but my impression is it's not nearly so thoroughly embedded as it is in the UK. So I've written, researched, practised, trained quite a lot in formulation throughout my career. So a formulation, as I'm sure your listeners will know, is a kind of way of summarising someone's particular difficulties and what we know from the evidence about the possible causes of those difficulties in a kind of personal story or narrative, or if you want to make it sound more important, a theory or hypothesis that relates to that particular person and suggests ways forward. So a formulation is, I mean, this is a controversial point in itself. We have formulation guidelines for our profession in the UK. I was one of the lead authors of those. And of course, formulations can be used. And in the from the perspective of the UK guidelines, wrongly use as an addition to functional psychiatric diagnosis. You know, your trauma triggered your schizophrenia sort of thing. Whereas mm. we, our guidelines, actually see formulation as an alternative. So instead of that, something like you are hearing voices as a response to the abuse you suffered, that'd be a psychological formulation as opposed to a psychiatric formulation. So psychological formulation does have real potential as an alternative to diagnostic understandings, and it's widely found in psychiatric services, uh, practiced mainly by psychologists. Um, Some psychiatrists practice it too. And through a process called team formulation, which is also widely found in psychiatric services, um, we can help whole teams to think, you know, this is the aim more psychologically than diagnostically. So formulation is potentially empowering, moving away from a narrow diagnostic narrative. Of course, it can be done badly as well as done effectively. And I think it's quite important to say that we see the power of that meaning framework as a step beyond psychological formulation as such. So in the framework, we've actually talked very little about formulation as such. We've talked about narrative more generally. Now, a formulation is a kind of narrative, but if we want to move beyond services and you know, talk about ordinary human beings and how they, for centuries, for millennia, have made sense of their distress. We need to talk about narrative more generally, narrative and meaning-making as being core human skills and attributes and way of making sense of the world. And if we go down that route, we can include in what we might be offering things like art, music, therapy, community rituals, understandings, legends, and so on. Indeed, many of the things that people who have not yet been infected by the disastrous diagnostic meme um, and ideas are are still using. So it's re-establishing the validity and the important place of some of those many, many ways of co-creating narratives. I'm reminded earlier how young people, uh, the new generations, opting to buy into diagnostic labels or even more precisely diagnostic acronyms like BPD or OCD or MDD. If we take, for instance, that uh, formulation is quite wordy, it's it's extensive and it's incredibly individualised to each person, then how can we combat some of those 
attitudes and cultural shifts towards adopting formulation in the new generation? Well, I, I think the way I see formulation as a, is as a very useful tool in services, and, and I'm not sure exactly how that would translate into talking to a distressed young person who's convinced they now have ADHD because they've seen 400 videos about my ADHD brain on TikTok. <laughs> so I think, in a way, you need a more informal understanding that you know, people's distress arises for reasons. And you can have those kind of conversations in quite a low key way. You don't need to kind of line up to see a psychologist to get a formulation in order to understand that your distress may be very reasonable in this in circumstances. So that's part of what the frame, if you wanted to take it a step further, what the framework offers is a semi-structured way by working through some core questions of constructing your own, what you could call formulation, what we probably prefer to call narrative. So although the framework, as I said, doesn't have a lot of specific things to say about do this, do that, it does have a gen, does offer a general way of constructing a narrative. And the idea of this is very much that you don't have to sit on a psychologist waiting list for a year and a half to get this special thing. You can do it yourself and you can do it collaboration with friends or supporters or family. So Mary Boyle and I have published a short accessible book, we hope, called A Straight Talking Introduction to, to the Power Threat Meaning Framework, which shows you how to do that. And we've been delighted to find that peer groups without any professional intervention have, in the UK, have taken this up, have decided in some cases to do this together, to talk this through together, to share ideas, to bounce ideas off each other. So it's about it's not just demedicalizing we're interested in in the framework it's deprofessionalizing it's you know restoring people's confidence to build their own meanings giving people a few tools to do that if they need that of course they may not need it they may already have their own perfectly valid ideas but giving them confidence that you don't have to buy this diagnostic stuff what you're doing and what makes sense to you is is absolutely fine and if you want a bit of ex some extra ideas here's some extra ideas for you mm some self-directed meaning making. And exactly. I, I suppose that's where power comes into again, that those power differentials yeah. between client and clinician don't even need to exist for therapeutic healing they, to occur. No, they don't. Mm. They don't. I mean, life can be healing, people can be healing, relationships can be healing. And the framework draws quite a lot on, although it's not synonymous with trauma-informed practice. And, you know, the messages of trauma-informed practice, I think, are very relevant. It's not so much about therapeutic techniques though I think those can be useful it's about words like listening believing honoring validating those kind of mm. words which is what any decent human being can do in the presence of another's distress mm. just taking back in terms of the the principles and the aims of the power threat and meaning framework what were the primary aims of the framework uh <laughs> that's a good question well, at one level, the primary aim was to outline the principles of a conceptual alternative to the diagnostic model, but to do so in a way that goes further than anything that currently exists, at least in westernised countries where these things are most needed. So our aim was to go well beyond, um, instead of calling it schizophrenia, let's call it psychosis, or even instead of psychosis, let's call it hearing voices, but to outline an entire set of principles. And in order, this is partly why the whole thing took so long, 
because what we kind of knew and rediscovered was that, of course, medical model thinking and medicine in general is only one outcrop, one manifestation of a whole way of thinking, which works very well in some circumstances, but could be traced back. I mean, many years you could trace it back you know, a, a very long way if you wanted to, but particularly to kind of what we might call positivist traditions, to enlightenment traditions, to ways of thinking and seeing the world and human beings and their place within it, which have been very helpful in lots of ways, but very limiting in others. So we wanted to outline the principles to really dig up the roots, if you like, so that we didn't end up with just a kind of slightly modified version of the same thing. Yes. And we wanted to yes respect the many ways you know the kinds of non-diagnostic practice which are around but offer us something a much bigger it's like a meta framework it's like an umbrella saying this is great this may add to what you're already doing and we would like these non-diagnostic alternatives such as they do exist to be the default model not you know just occasional things you might be lucky enough to come across underpinning this framework and this umbrella of of meaning and, and meaning making is language and Vernacular yeah. is so critical to uh, clinical psychology practice. When you spoke of the use of hearing voices instead of a, a mere psychotic episode or beyond that schizophrenia, yeah. um, even terms like, you know, they're mad or they're crazy or they've gone off and, uh, you know, gone to the hills for the night or whatever it might be, <laughs> um, the, the, the vernacular that's used, which is so uh, culturally enshrined and, and culturally conceptualised, seems to be getting a, a return to, to the stage where people can use vernacular and phrases that were previously not appropriate or unprofessional within mental health services. Yes, interesting question. We, we, we are obsessed with language in the framework, and I've always been obsessed with language. Um, because the unthinking, uncritical use of a whole range of terms, which aren't just diagnostic ones, but things like treatment or, you know, symptom or patient or, you know, prognosis or remission, or they all imply a whole model. And as soon as you use those words uncritically, it's like you've you sort of invited the whole the rest of the model, medical model into the picture. So we're incredibly particular about language. And as a replacement, we are suggesting, I mean, ordinary language terms will do the job. So things like hearing voices. And that might include ordinary language terms like they're, they're mad or they're crazy. Now, of course, they, those may have required pejorative meanings. So for very, that, that may be a reason for not using them. It depends what people want. Although, you know, there is a, an attempt, as you know, to reclaim words like mad and crazy, which is great. But the important thing is they're not medical words. They're not medical words. Yes. So mm. to that extent, that they're infinitely preferable. Other words beyond symptoms may also simply be that the people who are consumers of services of, of psychology... Um, I think Anthony Ryle in CAT has done terrific work in really highlighting uh, both neoliberal and the economic um, uh, influence of psychology services from using client yeah. to simply what they are. They're, they're a user of a service, they're service users. Do you feel the term service user or consumer is the most appropriate and fitting thing for uh, to describe a person who is uh, seeing a psychologist? Well, I mean, this is where language gets tricky. I mean, this is an endless debate, isn't it? What do we call people who are on the receiving end of psychiatric services? And wherever there's an endless debate and no one can settle on the term, then you know that it's, you know, it, this is the tip of an iceberg of a much more complex debate. So 
I mean, I tend to use a range of terms. I mean, service users, at least in the UK, seems to be the most neutral one. I don't think it's entirely satisfactory because it still has an an implication of, you know, you've chosen to use this service like I've chosen to use Virgin Broadband or whatever. And of course, that may not be the case at all. Mm. You know, again, it'd be nice to talk about people, wouldn't it? People in distress. But in some circumstances, you need to distinguish between people or people in distress who have got sucked into the system and and people who haven't. So Mm -hmm. there's no perfect answer to that, but it's good to keep debating it because in debating it, we are also at the same time debating very important core principles like, well, what are the power relationships and what is going on here and what is the nature of the interaction between a professional and and a person in distress who sees them? Yes. Given the the varied nature of how we can call those people, <laughs> uh, moving forward, then what have been what what's been the uptake of the power threat and meaning framework in terms of groups or training or policy documents within the UK and and more broadly around the world? Well, it's only been out it's been out less than three years, so you know it would be completely false to say that it's taken over the UK or the world, but it would uh, not be completely false to say it's having quite a significant impact and it's certainly it's on the scene in terms of well give you just one example I did a presentation to the American Psychological Association earlier this year where we were comparing and contrasting DSM, RDOC, HITOP, two of these potential replacements for the DSM and the Power Threat Meaning Framework so we were up there with the big boys that was quite Mm. nice so there are examples both within and beyond services. So within services, um, there's a a very impressive group of people working in one of the largest trusts in London who've managed to introduce the Power Threat Meaning Framework across their inpatient wards, which is about 14 of them, and uh, currently um, extending that project to crisis teams and community mental health teams and liaison teams. And it's been taken on um, they've got a lucky combination of people who are very supportive of innovative ideas. So that's been enormously successful and is already showing very good results in terms of staff satisfaction and outcome and so on. Yes, We've had a number of suggestions from local authorities. So that's in the UK, people who manage a range of local services like uh, police or housing or probation or, and so on, who want to embed the the, the framework in their core principles and their core approaches for how they're managing and running those services. For a clinical psychologist listening in right now, what would your suggestion be on how to convey the power threat and meaning model to a client in session? Okay, well, that's, you know, That would depend, of course, on the client, the relationship you have with them, whether or not they're interested in finding out some potentially helpful new ideas and so on. I mean, I'm afraid I'm going to refer you to, um, well, firstly, to the book I mentioned, a straight talking introduction to the Path That Meaning Framework. But if you don't want to spend the equivalent of £12 on that, you could look up the um, guided discussion, which is freely available on the Power Threat Meaning Framework website. So it's it's simply a way of sitting down with someone in a very low-key way and saying, I wonder if we could think about some of the things that have gone on in your life. Mm-hmm. So we actually have a core set of questions, which are 
what has happened to you, how is power operating in your life, how did it affect you, what kind of threats does this pose, what sense did you make of it, what is the meaning of those experiences to you, what did you have to do to survive, what kinds of threat response are you using, what are your strengths, and the idea is you can pull that together into what is your story. But So you'll find all those questions in those resources, but the idea is really not that this is a, like you know some new form of assessment where you use these words and, the, and those questions in that order. So we'd really encourage people to use any language they like. Mm. So, I mean, just off the top of my head, a really simple way of introducing it might be to say, you, as you may, you, know, you may or may not know, that there are some new ways of thinking about the kind of experiences you've described to me. And they involve spending a bit of time reflecting together on the events of your life and what they were like for you and how you cope with them and what was difficult and what was less difficult and how you've managed to survive them and that might involve us thinking about you know starting by thinking a bit more about what's gone on in your life mm, would you be up for having that kind of conversation that'd be mm. a simple way of doing it and you know a lot of psychologists are going to be doing that anyway but mm, it's kind mm. of permission to do it and it's permission to do it as an alternative to a diagnostic model not simply a kind of some kind of add-on, some yes. kind of trigger for your distress. I'm impressed at how accessible talking about power, which is a, a very latent uh, variable and experience is through using the framework. Mm. And it's so integrative if you take, for example, cognitive analytic therapy and the use of reciprocal roles and how power flows within those uh, dipoles around a, a sequential diagrammatic reformulation. Um, that in itself is a beautiful kind of connection between power mm. and threat and how that's occurred relationally. Um, mm. I'd just like to sort of move on to speaking a bit about your blog uh, on MAD in the UK, if I may, in 2019. You highlighted yeah. from the main framework document, and I'll, I'll just read this for a moment. The power threat framework, uh, the power threat and meaning framework predicts and allows for the existence of widely varying cultural experiences and expressions of distress without positioning them as bizarre or primitive, less valid or as exotic variations of the dominant, dominant diagnostic or other Western paradigms. And it's viewed as a framework that's based on universal evolved human capabilities and threat responses. The basic principles of the power threat meaning framework apply across time and across cultures. And within this, open-ended lists of threat responses and functions allow for an indefinite number of locally and historically specific expressions of distress, all shaped by prevailing cultural meanings. Now, for myself working in the Northern Territory in Australia, uh, only last week, the Northern Territory youth detention statistics found that 96% of youth detainees were Aboriginal uh, uh, children and 43 out of the 48 or 90% of those were, were male. And in uh, Australia more broadly, 3% of the population generally are um, identifying as Indigenous and 29% of all Australian prisoners are Indigenous, making up uh, with 91% male. The statistics are damning and the skewed direction of uh, males of First Nations peoples is particularly uh, significant. What can the power threat and meaning framework help to contextualise some of these statistics? Yes, those are shocking, horrifying statistics. And 
one of the things I wanted to do when I was in Australia and also just before I got to Australia and New Zealand was to have the opportunity to share some of the principles of the framework with people from Indigenous communities. And in both countries, I was able to do that. It was one of the most fascinating experiences of my life, but of course, one of the most shocking because I don't need to tell you how appalling the treatment of you know First Nation people has been in Australia. So, I mean, it's important to be kind of appropriately modest about this in a way. The framework was developed within and largely by Western and Westernised um, people from Western and Westernised cultures and understandings. So we're really not saying we want to export the framework across the world, but we are very much saying that one of the most horrendous consequences of the diagnostic model is not just the way it's colonised the minds of people in the culture with cultures within which it was developed, largely westernised cultures, but the way it's being exported across the globe under the banner of the global mental health problem, global mental health movement, which I think is one of the major scandals of our age, to be honest. You know, we used to export missionaries and take over people's countries. When I say we, I mean the British, of course, have a particularly, you know, shameful record in this regard. We're doing the same thing, but kind of more subtly in a way. I mean, one of our UK psychiatrists has described this as another form of, col- of co- colonisation. We're colonising people's minds with these, you know, unscientific, actually unevidenced, damaging, toxic ideas. And you can see the results in Indigenous communities. I mean, could there ever be more clear illustration of how the role of power in distress. You know, people in Indigenous communities have many, many, many reasons to be distressed, dating back generations. I don't need to tell you that. The framework is not saying we're offering this framework instead. It's saying we need to stop imposing this framework on places where it's even less appropriate than it is in Western, Westernised cultures. Mm. And that brings about a a really important example, for example, with borderline personality disorder. Uh, If we take the DSM criteria, Mm -hmm. frantic attempts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. Uh, If you look at First Nations people in Australia, they've experienced decades of forced separation from caregivers and family, um, identity disturbance, market and unstable self-image or sense of self, again, loss of family, kinship systems, land and country, recurrent self-mutilating behaviour, Uh, You've spoken about sorry cuts as a traditional way of of marking a death and chronic feelings of emptiness, how grief and hopelessness from cumulative loss, trauma and disempowerment uh, continue to manifest in those same ways. It's no wonder from those uh, broader psychosocial experiences intergenerationally that these individuals and these groups will uh, experience these difficulties. And yet again, we're we're colonising those experiences and in some ways providing just another level of disempowerment by uh, labelling those things as pathological. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, it, it is a horrendous thing to do. And one of the things the framework um, tries to do is to go well beyond some of the causal influences in distress that we are beginning to acknowledge, things like abuse and neglect and so on, and to look much further back and much more broadly at things like intergenerational trauma, loss of land, country, identity, you know, all the things that apply to Indigenous people. 
and I, I, I had a very encouraging experience actually in New Zealand where I presented the framework alongside some people from Maori heritage and um, as you probably know in New Zealand it's actually possible to go to a clinic that will work with Maori creation stories rather than with diagnostic understandings which is wonderful and I spoke to a couple of people involved in that in those services and uh, one of the psychiatrists said the existence of the framework helped to justify that we were that we needed to set up and we were right to set up these culturally appropriate services for people who understand their problems in very different ways actually in, in narrative terms because a Maori understanding would be in terms of legends about the sky father and the earth mother and so on and she described the framework as a distant cousin and I found that quite a moving way of describing it it's not the framework is going to replace Maori understandings but it's if the framework was or something like it was a default model in Western understandings, we'd be respecting and learning from local indigenous understandings rather than trying to impose our understandings on people. So Lucy, from your own clinical experience, do you have any anecdotes of uh, what's informed your passion for uh, an alternate form of understanding human distress? Um, I have so many anecdotes, to be honest, dating back more than... 30 years and um, but some of them stick in your mind more than others so one that I often think of which I think illustrates you know the nature of services but also why change is so much needed and how far I've come since then in in some ways is um, this must be at least 30 years ago I was working on an inpatient ward and um, a young woman was brought in by her father a rather intimidating looking man uh, and his rather scared looking wife announcing that their daughter had suddenly developed schizophrenia and they'd looked up all the symptoms and she needed to be in hospital and the psychiatrist uh, agreed that her symptoms were indicative of schizophrenia and admitted her and started to give her drugs her symptoms were her main I mean she was very disturbed and distressed young woman but her key symptom even at that time long before trauma-informed approaches had really become in any way mainstream rang a warning bell for me one of her symptoms was that men were coming through the walls of her bedroom at night and raping her so because I'd always believed that symptoms had meaning I was bound to wonder well what is this about so I discussed it with some of the team members One of them felt that the relationship with the father was indeed, you know, it it felt uncomfortable in some way, that it was hard to put your finger on. The psychiatrist was absolutely determined that this was a classic case of schizophrenia. I was um, assigned to do something that's still popular, a form of cognitive behavioural therapy with families. So I and a colleague went around to see this family and were supposed to be telling them all sorts of things about communicating as a family and spending time together and dealing with the symptoms of this unfortunate disease that had hit their family. It made me feel so uncomfortable that I, in fact, dropped out of this project. Anyway, so this young woman spent a long time on the ward. Uh, I bumped into her at a conference, must have been 20 years later, and I remembered her and... I went up to her and I said, uh, I'll give her a false name. I said, Mary, I always felt we let you down as a team. You know, how are you doing? And she recognised me and she said, 
I'm doing much better. And she said, after I just discharged from the hospital, I found an art therapy project in the community. I went there daily for, for a long time. They helped me to separate from my family. I'm actually doing quite well now. And she said, you realise I was being raped by both my father and my mother. So there we are. You know, it sums up psychiatry in a nutshell, doesn't it? We were, the ward was massively reinforcing her sense of disempowerment, labelling it as a deficit in her, going along with the family's not very hidden agenda, setting on the path of being a long-term patient, which luckily she escaped from, reinforcing this with some ridiculous CBT approach to helping families to get on better together, denying the meaning of her so-called symptoms. And a framework approach would obviously be very different. And to be fair, many other approaches, like a hearing voices approach or an open dialogue approach, would also be very different from that. Yes. Mm. So with that in mind, as a potential roadmap for Australian mental health care, how can the framework be most effectively incorporated into our systems in Australia? Well, that's a difficult question. You know, there's the framework itself is, in a sense, quite idealistic. We wanted to write something without compromising what we believed. Now, how you take that into practice is very different. And I've also written and do quite a lot of training about that. You know, you have to you're not going to change things by rushing in with a dramatically new idea and trying to insist everyone does it. You have to start small. You have to push it open doors. As we've discussed at uh, and at one-to-one level, you might be gently introducing the idea that there's a story between, behind people's distress. You might be at another level introducing the framework to your teams as something to discuss. You might be linking up with local peer groups and seeing if they're interested in any of these ideas. You might be offering training. You might be sharing some examples of where it's already being used quite successfully. You know, that there's a whole very big system that isn't going to crumble overnight. And that's why I partly think change is not going to come from within the system. But I think we do need people within the system doing the very hard, frustrating work. And this was me for many decades and my colleagues many decades of trying to change systems that are only going to realistically change up to a certain point. I think we have to be realistic about that. At the same time, it's enormously important, I think, to do our best for people who are already in the system. And I think change will come from outside, as major change always does, from the grassroots. This is why we really want the framework to be read beyond services. We don't want people to kind of see psychiatric practice for the damaging fraud it is. We want people to be aware of different ideas. You know, the less people turn to psychiatry in its current format for help, the quicker we'll see the end of it. And I think we are seeing the end of it. I think we're seeing the crumbling of a paradigm. And, you know, we hope something very different will emerge and we hope the framework will be at least some contribution to whatever different approaches are emerging and will and will emerge. Yes, and it's promising to know that paradigms have shifted and been completely overhauled in the past and that mm. there's no reason why it can't continue into the future. Lucy Johnson, thank you so much for your time. Uh, what would be as a starting point for a, a clinician in Australia who wants to read more about the Power, Threat and Meaning framework? Where would they go and what should they read? If you go on the main British Psychological Society website, type in British Psychological Society Power, Threat, Meaning Framework, 
you will you'll find a website with I would probably start if you want to find out more to be honest with a short interview or video there's lots of them up there explaining the framework in you know fairly quickly and accessibly I hope the main documents are also there as I said they're longer and more difficult to read I would also suggest if you want to take it a bit further our book uh, a straight talking introduction to the power threat meaning framework published in the UK but they do um send they do sell books overseas as well you know start with that look at some of the good practice examples in that section of the website and take it from there and if you have examples of using the framework in your practice please let us know there's an email address you can get in contact we'd love to add more material to the website because that's what it's about it's not about us telling you how to do it it's about us suggesting some ideas and looking forward to hearing from you and adding mm -hmm. that to the evolving framework related practice it sounds terrific thank you so much for your time thank you i hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll join us again soon for another conversation from the wide world of clinical psychology. Please subscribe to Clinically Thinking so you don't miss the next episode. You can also follow us and interact with our Facebook page. You may like to share feedback, comments or questions about the topic we've just listened to or even leave a suggestion for someone you'd like to hear from in the future. Until next time, I'm Dr. Lisa Chantler. Thanks for listening.